Hey, welcome to Tech Lido. This podcast is basically the everyday stuff an average person thinks about, raw and honest, filled with humor and wit. We chat about creativity, leadership, entrepreneurship, failure and success. Things which needs deep discussions but lighter moments. So it's me Kazim joined by some amazing industry experts. friends occasionally to talk about some great topics that we otherwise don't discuss in a candid manner every sunday a new episode so i would love you all to join me hey welcome ismail nice talking to you uh we finally got to connect uh i mean it was really an uh, a long journey to be very honest <laughs> to be able to get you into the episode but thanks for taking out time i really appreciate that uh it's going to be a fun episode uh so looking forward for that welcome to tech lido thanks kareem very good to be here good to talk to you uh thank you very much uh ismail it's my honor uh to have you and thanks for your time um i one thing that really interested me ismail in your profile was um uh that how did this young boy who comes from an immigrant family uh, who moved from india to uk dreamt uh, what were what were the goals that you had in your childhood that led you to become the chief growth officer today uh, in the uk's largest business process outsourcing uh, and professional services company uh, i just want to know your your aims your goals uh, how it all started uh i mean the viewers would love it uh most of the times when we ask these questions to our leaders uh, they have a story an emotional connected story that led them to where they are today so we would love to hear from you as well i can i can i can try and do 55 years in a couple of minutes uh so my parents came uh they were economic migrants out of gujarat in india uh working in the cotton mills of lancashire and of course you will now know that most of the cotton mills are now in india Uh, and my father keeps telling me he's left back in Lancashire and all his work is back in India. Um I did a computer science degree at Salford University and then joined a consulting company as a COBOL programmer uh Logiker actually it was. Um and I've had basically a technology career with Computer Sciences Corporation I was a partner at Accenture then I did a startup um with the startup I moved to the US and we moved for 2 years but we ended up staying nearly 9 years. and then i moved back with capita in uh, end of 2018 early 2019 in amongst that i did uh, um uh, an mba at manchester business school part time <clears throat> actually because i felt that i was i had been pigeonholed as a technologist and all of the good jobs were going to business people and of course as soon as i did my mba dot com came uh, and it was clear that everybody wanted technology so that said everything about where i thought the industry was going um and i've uh, i would i would say that my you know where i where i where i am now is somebody who's a keen technologist but can no longer program but loves to talk about the technology and the impact it has on business well uh cool. so how was the startup uh uh out of the bay area as most of the startups in the us are out of the bay area yeah well, i had two startups actually um i had one startup uh very early in my career which was a which was a ibm and credit suisse uh, startup and it was in uh, north carolina actually um and actually the guy who was the chief technology officer in that startup is my co-author um for the book and he he actually went out of work and went into academia and he's now at Carnegie Mellon and Harvard 
so again, you know, full circle from people I worked with 20 years ago, we ended up writing a book together. That was the first startup. The second one was um, actually New York-based, um, and it was Capcall, which was a consulting company focused on financial services. And I started my life with them running UK. I was the UK CEO, and then I moved to New York, um, actually, which is where I am right now. Oh, uh, the one thing I just want to ask is uh, in this in this era of digital business and rapid technology, right? Uh, change, um, virtually no company can ignore the imperative to innovate. Uh, failing to do so is an innovation to lose business itself. So how do you think um, the fintech industries or the consulting companies are taking that path uh, of innovating themselves uh, and providing the value uh, as a consulting business that they have to provide uh, to these big technology companies? So the fintech, I mean, I, and I worked uh, around the fintech world um, for I think a good decade when I was with Capco and then also with IBM. Um, it's, you know, financial services is actually from a sector uh, in terms of the spend they have on technology and services associated with them is 50% of all spend, right? So it's a huge sector. And then as you think about that sector, the fintech uh, world, which is businesses trying to reimagine and reinvent the whole financial services sector has a disproportionate impact, not only on that industry, but also other industries who are looking to see what's happening in fintech because so much investment, so much venture capital money is going into that space. And what, we see, what we're seeing actually is a lot of the work that had been going on for the last two decades. And you know, when, if you remember when we were talking about Brexit, for example, one of the big discussions is what happens to all the fintech startups that are currently headquartered in London and Paris is after them and Frankfurt is after them and so on, because they are so valuable for investment, for technology, for talent, for innovation and so on. So I think they've, they've played a disproportionate part. And actually, as you look at financial services now, and you look at these uh, startup banks that are coming up, like Metro Bank that's coming up, or you look at some of the practices that traditional banks are embarking upon, um, you know, for example, if, if I was talking to uh, a guy who, who, who's running global retail for Barclays, Ashok, and he was telling me the impact that they have because they have to stay competitive against a startup, changes these 100-year-old businesses uh, because of the potential threat that's, um, that's really coming up because of the ideas coming from fintechs. So I think, I think you know, uh, the jury's out in terms of what the ultimate impact will be, but clearly what we have seen is that it is already, fintechs are already making a massive uh, disruption into the financial services industry. Yeah, uh, and uh, I agree. Uh, improving the financial return on innovation is ultimately the name of the game as well, right? So when it comes to getting result, do you think the strategy, not size, matters in the innovation spend that these fintech companies do or the consulting companies do? Um, well, of course, in investment is important, but I think where innovation comes from, and, and, uh, and you know, the book, the book talks about the idea that large organizations who have got size, they have got networks, they've got ecosystems, they've got marketing, they've got brand, they actually have so many advantages that could really position them for incredible innovation. What they don't have is a lot of what the small companies have, 
which is mindset, which is culture, which is ability to be agile, which is ability to think outside of the box. And so I think there is, um, you know, and, and that is a lesson that large organizations can learn, which is while size matters, it is not enough. You need to have this cultural impact to be able to drive the innovation that all large organizations want to drive. I, I, I think it was nice that you brought up the topic. I did a, a big episode with one of the agile leaders uh, in based out in London, and they told that um, there are two ways of doing becoming agile, right? Um, the banking industry is catching up the agile game. They're just catching up uh, to be agile. The reason being is there are a lot of complexities within the fintech industry. Like, But some of the banks now, they don't call themselves banks because they call themselves as technology cloud banking companies, right? Uh, do you think it's that the norm that all the banks will start taking, uh, reducing the number of outlets they have in terms of banking and taking everything digital, uh, making more agile, more flexible for the people to, in this COVID-19 situation as well, uh, people are bound to use everything from home. Like, you know, you don't have to go because of the lockdowns and everything. What do you think the industry trend will change after the COVID-19, looking at the fact that the, the banks are becoming more and more agile? Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. I was talking to one of the leaders uh, in one of the big four UK banks, and they were telling us that the biggest change they've seen in COVID is the reduction in the use of cash. Right. And so suddenly, uh, if you then align that with the fact that, uh, you know, people were concerned about going to cash machines and what that meant in terms of picking up any infection and also the dramatic increase in people doing online shopping, then clearly that is going to drive a huge uh, acceleration of the movement towards different sort of payment uh, alternative payment processes other than cash. And I think it was Satya Nadella who said uh, in, in the summer that we've had two years of transformation in two months because everybody had to do that. And I think financial services have all also seen that. I think um, the, the, there's other trends that I think are becoming really apparent. One is the idea that uh, a Generation Z or even a millennial is, does not want to go into a bank. They don't want to go into a bank, right? Yeah. They want to talk to the bank people when they want to talk to them. They want to interact and dis do all of their discovery online before they go and talk to somebody about any products that they want to talk about. They want to be concerned about the purpose of the bank rather than the bank being just financially oriented. Is the bank aligned with my values? Um, are they, and, you know, and you've seen all of the banks now announce their sustainability approaches, their approaches to reaction to BLM, you know, all of the things that you consider to be side issues on our very core strategic issues for banks. So I think there's, 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 there's social change coming for banks, there's technological change coming for banks, there's the pressure around COVID and Brexit coming for banks. I think there is privacy and cyber coming for banks. So I think the financial services landscape will be materially different. Uh, I don't know whether you saw today, PayPal announced that Bitcoin is going to be one option that, you know, they, one, one form of payment that they're happy to process. I mean, massive change that we would never have thought of even a few months ago. So, yeah, I think for large banks who are not open to change, winter is definitely coming. 
that's a nice way to put in one way, right? Uh, one more thing I just want to ask you, Smile, and, and you touched some topics there is like, for example, uh, some of the companies uh, like the big banks, they have, they have done this gambling uh, of innovating um, a lot of different things. Uh, I don't want to name the companies though, um, but from blind bets to viable business models, right? Uh, so random acts of innovation rarely pay off. Um, in that way, 50%, 54% of the innovating companies uh, struggle to bridge the gap between innovation strategy and business strategy. So as a leader, as a chief growth officer, what do you think should be the thought process in bridging that gap? Uh, so the thing is, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of data which uh, focusing on what an organization needs to do if it wants to focus on innovation strategy. Um, the first thing is that they just operate faster. So there's a metabolism of a company, which is that they just operate faster. In fact, there was some McKinsey data which said that large organizations who are innovative, they will relocate talent and capital four times more quickly than their less nimble peers. So the first thing is that they operate faster. Second thing is that they make bolder and braver decisions. Um, large organizations who are innovative make bold, brave decisions. If you think about it, I'll give you an example. The idea that Walmart are looking at TikTok as a potential acquisition is very interesting. It's yeah. bold. It's brave. It's going to change Walmart as much as it's going to change the industry. Changes the game for Amazon as well, as you think about this. No, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, but the one thing I want to add uh, there is uh, the proposed teaming up of giant retailer and Microsoft to run the video app in the United States uh, make more sense in light of direction TikTok owners uh, has taken siblings uh, uh, apps in China, uh, its home country, right? So, for example, the social media giant that runs both apps, ByteDance, began testing e-commerce features on Duo, uh, Duo in in 2018, I guess, and um, and then the, the the Chinese social media giant uh, just went crazy. I mean, everybody started using it. The sheer size of the Chinese consumer market has created a vast field of retail experiments of other kinds uh, as well, you know. And um, it, it makes complete sense uh, for... And also, uh, uh, they can sell their... Uh, products uh, directly to audience in TikTok, you know, and but but one thing which which I want to add here is, for example, silo busting innovation models, right? Uh, like there is open innovation, design thinking, uh, co-creating co with pa customers, partners, suppliers, and then there's traditional R&D. Uh, and from my experience of working with fintech uh, companies, uh, the the R and D or the traditional R and D is very low. There, there is no research and development into improving uh, the products. Uh, it is changing. I agree with you. But back then, when when I was associated with, uh, there was very little innovation uh, into the fintech products. Do you think it's changed now, or or uh, people are catching up um, with the fact that don't oh, know we need to uh, align this product with 
this company. We need to partner with this product, with this company. Earlier, we don't had that. I mean, fair financial sector wouldn't partner with uh, our technology companies. They thought that, okay, our data will be compromised, our customers will be compromised. But that has changed now with improving technology and the security aspects as well. Do you think um, uh, consulting companies like the Capita um, themselves are encouraging that to their fintech customers? Well, I, th I think that what's happening is that organizations are becoming uh, clear that innovation might not come from product and service, but might come from changes and innovation in the operating model. And when you start thinking about that, and when we start thinking about an operating model supported by technology, such as a technology platform, then uh, Everybody, and, and, and think about it, right? The, the most powerful companies in the world, the most valuable companies in the world right now, which is Salesforce, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, Alibaba, are all platform companies. And by the way, most of them, if not all of them, have a financial services component, which is bigger than some of the financial services organizations that are out there. And, and, and I think what they're demonstrating is that there is lots of value, lots of value to be created in thinking about ecosystems and what platform you're going to provide to that ecosystem and what platform you will use from that ecosystem. And so what I think we're seeing as a result of this thinking and a result of what the market is saying, they're valuing these, you know, these businesses more than anything else, is that all organizations have to think what they're going to play. And in that mindset, suddenly everything becomes easier to accept in what was once a competitor is somebody who you might partner with in an ecosystem. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing that transformation going on. And you're quite right, you know, especially financial services organizations were very slow to partner. Um, but if you go to your earlier point, which is a lot of financial services organizations are saying, look, we're a technology company with a banking license then they have to behave like a technology company, right? Which is they are part of ecosystems and partnering and collaboration and uh, competing with the same people is, is business as usual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Compete and they partner. I think those are some of the things that they have to get used to. Yeah, and also uh, there's a trend ongoing now um, within the financial industry as well, that there is internal startups within the uh, big uh, organizations as well. But most of those um, uh, startups uh, need uh, the X factor, the human experience, right? Uh, and you need to have right candidates at the right time uh, to build that vision of startups within the art. Like for example, um, if you look uh, Fidelity, uh, they invest a lot within um, their employees to start new startups within the organization itself like they say okay bunch of group of people they hire them they say okay you need to work on the startup and then they finally hire that uh, startup for themselves and they invest in that as well do you think most of the bigger companies have to do that in order to bring more innovation bring uh, the x factor human experience the reason i'm asking this is because most of the internal employees who work in the fintech industry either they are used to the and um, work they are doing with, a, with no innovation or they just do the technology partnership with third party vendors to bring in the innovation and say, guys, this is a feature uh, some of the companies need or some of my customers need. So can you build this for us? 
uh, and or else they will do the channel and business model partners uh, because they never do the customer via focus groups, data miners, feedback. Uh, it's very rarely have seen that. Uh, but don't you think that uh, the companies need to invest more in this X factor human experience, bring in the change uh, so that the banking system or the financial sector is viewed as uh, the technology uh, giants? Well, I mean, I think if, if your question is, um, should large organizations bring in expertise? Uh, the answer is yes, but it's a qualified yes. The data that we looked at uh, in our books tell us that actually the success of creating separate innovation units in large organizations is actually quite low. And actually also the success of, for example, Barclays saying we're going to have an innovation unit in Cupertino and then hoping that they take, you know, create good ideas for you and put it back into your organization. That model is also quite low. And thirdly, the success of creating a Silicon Valley somewhere else is also quite low because there's a lot of factors which determine why Silicon Valley is successful, including talent and tax uh, and the ability um, to have access of collaboration and people working together to share IP, all sorts of things going on there. Now, where we find people have been successful is, yes, you know, bringing talent to help show what good looks like, but actually there isn't an easy way of doing it. The way to do it is to change the culture, the incentive, the processes within an organization using these people, but don't rely on these people to do everything because they will get pushed out from a, from a cultural resistance perspective from the large organization. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture, actually. There's, there's a lot of data now on what success looks like. Um, and in, in terms of driving success in large organizations, there's a mixture of how you can make it happen, including getting good talent in, but not uh, relying only on that talent without changing the organization themselves. I mean, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a great example. If you, if you think about, if you remember, um, as, as a cultural example, if you remember HMV, right, which is yeah. music, film, video game retailer. Yeah. Um, this, you know, if you look at some of the stories, there is some great stories in 2010, 2011 around HMV board meetings where people who understood what was happening to streaming music and streaming video were urging the board to change the operating model and the business to react to that. And the board said, actually, I, we cannot imagine people buying music over the video. They want to go into a store and have the experience of buying a record or a DVD. And of course, they got it dramatically wrong. And so this cultural idea of not listening is huge, actually. And as you know, uh, I think HMV went bankrupt twice. They went bankrupt in 2013 and again in 2018. There are lots of examples around, you know, what culture looks like. You know, there could be lack of patience. Great examples of companies that have not waited long enough for something uh, to become uh, real. Uh, you know, there's also time. If you think about Nike and you think about the fuel band, remember the fuel band that they have? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, that, yeah. Think about it now, the Fitbit uh, and the Apple Watch and the Garmin is a massive industry and Nike are not playing in there because they shut down that business too quickly. 
And Nike, this is Nike, you know, this is the just do it culture. So I think there's lots of cultural things that contribute. Uh, and I don't think that just bringing in people and putting them on the side to do innovation is a model that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want is this, is this smile uh, a tech innovation leader or, or a follower? Or, or how do you view uh, yourself? Uh, <laughs> I'm an observer, I'd say. I think I'm an observer, um, and I would like to think that I I like I'm a fast follower. So you know I like to connect the dots and try to um, try to engage in change in the organisations that I'm worked in. Uh, I like to take risks in terms of technology. I believe in technology, actually, as a as a force for good. Yeah, and and how do you view uh, yourself as 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 a, what do you imbibe in yourself as a key management disciplines to achieve intelligent growth? Uh, is that well, some? It's quite interesting, actually. Um, you know, early on in my career, I would have answered the question and said it's all about uh, delivery. Okay. It's all around around what you give. What I would now say, having you know learned a lot and failed a lot, is that it's all in how you deliver, because long-term sustainability comes from your teams being able to do it themselves uh, in a way which is better than what you can do it. Which means that you need, to, as a leader, you need to facilitate rather than manage, and that was a painful lesson to me over many decades. And and how do you think um, the culture has changed? Uh, do you think the cultural inclusion is more important in these big companies now? Uh, looking at the fact that you need to have different mix of talent in order to make uh, your companies uh, successful. As a leader, as as a growth officer, what do you think can uh, bring those changes in in your own org? I think I think there is a recognition at the leadership level that uh, inclusivity and diversity drives better business results. I don't think that has been translated yet where the organizations at the leadership level and middle management level reflect the societies in which we live and work. So this is a long way from success. And so some of the structural issues we have with making sure that we give equal opportunity to all people, you know, uh, to ensure full diversity uh, is work in progress. I mean, there is too much to be done. Uh, in fact, I was desperately disappointed when I came back from the USA back to the UK in that the number of senior leaders, um, women and people uh, from different backgrounds who were in leadership position hadn't really changed. And I've been away for nine years. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I think there's a recognition that, you know, it, it's the goodness, but in terms of actually doing it, I think we're a long way off. Uh, I, I I just want to ask, um, uh, I, I want to dive into one of the topics, right? This is an age of AI, and this is, and just you brought up the topic. Uh, competing in the age of AI, uh, looking at the machine learning, um, because that's where I work a lot as well. What are what are the challenges uh, do you think uh, the fintech industry faces in terms of uh, uh, the opportunities that has huge potential from the AI and the machine learning? Yeah, you know this. I don't think you can overstate the importance of AI. I think 
there is a potential for it to change the world more than anything in the history of mankind, including electricity. I really, really think, and and there's uh, it's you know it's it's overhyped in some instances, but it is on a journey to be able to deliver something which is going to structurally change everything in the world. So you know if you look at the different industries. Um, this idea of, that we've talked about self-driving cars forever will come about. And I think I was reading again, Tesla was saying that one of their cars is now uh, level five, uh, fully autonomous that comes from AI. We've looked at, uh, if you look at Alibaba and Amazon and the AI powered robots, uh, you think about health and you think about the idea that you could predict who's going to be ill, when they're going to be ill, what sort of medication should be prescribed, um, uh, and, you know, we, in, in, when we were at IBM, we were in, interfacing that sort of information with weather data, with retail data. So, you know, at the right time when the weather is good, you could get, go to the right sort of pharmacy and get sort of medication just because of all of this machine learning around all of the data about you as an individual. We know if you go on Bloomberg AI or um, generating self-generated complex finance reports, it's incredible, right? This is this is business as usual today. Um, I think if we go to uh, customer experience, there's other examples where uh, Google is making restaurant bookings, right? And that is a very natural language discussion going on, making sense of that. And then I think if you look forward, we 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 know in a couple of years we expect AI to write or to respond to school essay questions, which again, you know, is very natural thinking. Um, I think we, we, we see that uh, in the next 10 years, there's an expectation that AI agents will outperform humans in the retail industry. So, you know, I think, I, th I think it'll change everything. And I read somewhere, which I totally believe, which is, you know, everybody is going to be an AI business or they're not going to be a business at all. Everybody is going to have to think about what data they have, how do they make sense of data and how do they use it to get insight and take action which is the AI paradigm. I think everybody's got to go down that road. And do you, do you, do you believe that uh, the authenticity, the vulnerability and credibility, trust and natural charisma also comes uh, trusting more and more on AI? Like looking at the fact uh, uh, the millennials or the new young uh, generation want to be part of AI, but we also uh, need to understand uh, if there's any security breach or the data breach uh, the, all the information about um, not just the information that you have put in uh, from your own hands, but the big orgs who store them uh, can be compromised. No, I think I think that you've hit on really the big issue, right? Which is what everybody is concerned about. Which is as much as AI can be powerful and as a source for goodness in everything that we're talking about. We know that AI can also be really, really dangerous. You know, AI can be programmed to do something uh, devastating. Um, AI can be biased. We've heard about all of that. Uh, and so there is a big discussion around the ethics around AI that still needs to be addressed. And there's big questions also about who decides the ethics around AI, right? I mean, this, this is the sort of... Uh, cultural discussions that we go, that's going on across the world right now, right? What does good look like in terms of society norms? And how do you translate that into what good ethics look like around AI? I think those things, um, I mean, if every, anything stops 
AI and the magic around AI it is us not getting our heads around what it means in terms of ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's, what's more important uh, for you as a, as a leader, uh, using the company technology to make money or using the company, uh, company technology to save uh, uh, dying products, uh, to improvise them, uh, probably innovate from the scratch, from concept to the market itself. What's more important as a, as a leader for yourself? Actually, it's not, not neither of those things, actually. The, <laughs> the focus is around the, um, how do you create better outcomes for all stakeholders, of which the company is one, and the shareholders is one area, right, which is where we need to make money. But we also have what impact does it have on the society, what impact does it have on our clients, what impact does it have on our employees. And if you think in that holistic way, uh, and you know our employees and our clients play a big part here, they may say actually there may be a good use case for this technology to be innovated, but it's not interesting to us. Uh, what we want to do is actually reuse um, this old technology. I mean, I'll give you an example of that. If you think about, in, there's a great example that we talk about, um, you've heard of Patagonia, right? The, the clothing, clothing, yeah. clothing company. Yeah. I, I love that brand, by the way. <laughs> you know the brand, right? So, so in 2011, on Black Friday, and you'll know Black Friday in the US, is it like Boxing Day, right? Everybody goes shopping and so on. Patagonia in Black Friday, 2011, put an advert out where they said, this is a Patagonia jacket, don't buy it. And what they were saying was actually, our clients are telling us is what's more important to them is sustainability than an innovation on this jacket. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna create a platform for you to buy secondhand goods, secondhand Patagonia goods. And so for them, the innovation came in the operating model driven by the client and by climate change and sustainability. For them to say, we're gonna, our innovation is this new shop which sells very good secondhand Patagonia products, and which is now a very good revenue stream for them. So, you know, this is an example of how you can use different stakeholders to determine what your company strategy is, because the normal view would have been, I've got a jacket, I'm going to create a newer version of it and then tell people to buy it. And I think that that's where uh, a lot of businesses, and, you know, I really buy into that, are changing to determine that their strategy is driven by the different stakeholders rather than just make something better and better. And uh, you, you, you touched the points on, on the branding you think branding your product, this is not just about the branding of the whole big company. I'm talking about the internal products you build for your customers. You think you need to create a brand uh, background for that when you send those to your customers because that is when uh, these customers buy that and, and we enhance their experience. You think the branding and product thinking and strategically placing the product is very important in this new age? It depends. It depends on what your market strategy is and whether a, a, a product associated with the company brand is an advantage or a disadvantage. Uh, in some instances, you know, every time you have a brand, don't forget, there's a cost of maintaining that brand. Um, and so you've got to balance that with the advantage of a product having a brand on their own. And every time you have a brand, um, you're then creating an organization that supports that brand. And remember earlier on, we talked about the innovation angle. 
and innovation needs collaboration and no silos, well, you're creating a silo immediately there, right? Which might be a good thing, but you've got to be conscious of what you're doing. So I don't think it's a straightforward yes or no there. I think it depended the answer as to what you're trying to achieve out of that. Um, and, and, uh, and in some instances, it makes a lot of sense to have a product supported by a unique brand. In a lot of instances, it doesn't. And, and what are what would be your recommendations for an effective digital transformation uh, for a company? And for I, I wouldn't say big orgs because they have their own teams who handle that. But for the startups and entrepreneurs, what do you think the, uh, your recommendations would be for uh, bringing that effective digital transformation? Well, I think um, th there's a number of things I think I would focus on. I would focus on data and making sure that the company is in a position to make decisions based on data. And that creates all sorts of need for change in the infrastructure, need for change in data collection and so on. That's one point. And the data can be about the internal organization or the clients in the marketplace, but how do you capture that data? The second thing is a cultural thing, which is around agility, which is an organization has the ability to be agile to the different needs of the market. And again, there is something here around, um, you know, especially for startup and smaller organizations who are very keen on an idea how and you know and they, they, they and they are very focused and all the rest of it how can they be agile so that they learn as they go through and the third thing for an organization i think is important is the talent i think without talent everybody nobody's got anything right and so how do you attract the best sort of talent and therefore how do you have the best culture to attract the best talent I think those are things that I think are pretty important as an organization thinks through its strategy. So basically you are implying that uh, more data about the customers you're serving, the marketing's impact uh, than, than ever before, right? Uh, but also getting an insight on uh, what probably the perception that data is now easily available in is not accurate for most uh, for most uh, senior leaders, right? but most companies suffer from data chaos and marketers and suffer, um, and expo they suffer exponentially uh, because data is held in different silos that are difficult to connect. Uh, so to break that barrier, uh, do you think it's an imperative to have metric driven conversation with all stakeholders within the company frequently? Um, I think it is, but that's always been a leadership you know, from, from a long time ago, I think uh, the, the right metrics driving the right behavior is something that's been really important. I think what is increasingly important now is that we know that data availability has never been like it has been now. Everybody is producing data about your product, your competitor's product, pricing, people, move everything. And I think the infrastructure to be able to collect it, to make sense of it, to provide insight so you can make decisions is the new thing that you know you need to be able to create and automate. Cool. Uh, uh, Ismail, I just want to ask you a few questions, which I uh, I always do this fun session where uh, I got some, when I said I'm interviewing you uh, on LinkedIn, I got some so many comments uh, and, and, and messages. So I just want to ask a few questions that I got from the audience as well. Uh, okay. So I'll start with like, who do you think or who do you look up for your inspiration or mentorship? and 
tell us tell us your journey of um, uh, how you or uh, change or uh, think of changing something uh, or uh, or bring an impact to a team or 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 your product uh, so two two different questions in terms of mentorship i think there is there isn't one there's a number of people there is uh, you know my parents who came as immigrants into the uk and the journey they went on has been inspirational i had a boss um at cfc uh, uh Keith Wilman who's now retired living in portugal he gave me lots of responsibility very early in fact during the dot com era um i was responsible for setting up cfc vibe which is the dot com business of vibe which was an absolute disaster and i remember him telling me that this was the most expensive mba he's ever paid for <laughs> because putting me in that position and failing like i did was just an incredible thing he's been an incredible mentor i'm still in touch with him uh, i have spiritual and you know religious mentors i have uh, you know uh, a sheikh um in a, in a darul uloom in the uk who uh, who died last year actually but he he has been incredible in terms of giving us leadership and support as i've gone through my career uh and then uh, you know uh, um i'm mentored by people who are a lot younger than me and doing startup businesses uh and they are going through uh the pain they don't know what they don't know and they make decisions that i would never make because you know i think i know better and they're being successful and i'm learning lots lots from them so you know i think there's a, a holistic view of different people and that there's a lot more that i could mention that i work with and i have worked with um but there's a lot of people there that i think i'm being mentored by what was the second part of your question uh how do you view change as like if if you if you want to change something how do you go about yeah i mean i think um and you know my job at capital actually is all about that at the moment uh, and has been since the day i joined which was to transform the sales marketing and consulting function from what it was to what we're trying to do now and i think it starts with two things one is um a view of a very strong view of where you want to go that you can communicate very simply very simple is and the simpler you can communicate it uh the better but which you are in mentally able to change that very strong view based on data right mm-hmm. so you have a very strong i had a very strong view which said look this is what we're going to do we're going to roll out this technology we're going to do this with the people we're going to do this with our clients and markets that is a strategy based on what i know but i'm very open to all of that being changed but if you come with a better idea you better have data to come back and say why this might be changed and then i think once you've got the baseline and the data mentality that people can challenge but it's got to be based on data i think the next question that uh, is important is to take people along with you on that journey which means that it's slower than it could be right you could go faster you could make decisions for people you could leave lots of collateral damage and get something done but it will not be as sustainable as if you take people with you mm-hmm. and, and i think you know th- those two or three things have stood me in good stead and i think as i have um as i've sort of got older i have slowed down in many ways 
but the change has, I suspect has been more sustainable as I've done that. Um, but of course it's very frustrating because you know you could go much faster. And then um, uh, this is one of the interesting questions. What is the one decision you wish you didn't make <laughs> in your career? What is the one decision that I wish I did not make? There's loads of decisions actually. <laughs> I wish I did not. But make. which is the one that you have in your mind that yeah, I I, I don't want to remember that. <laughs> uh, I don't. I just want to go ahead. Uh, I just want to think about that. No, I'm not. Sh- um, I'm not sure there's anything as explicit as that. I mean, you know, from from all of the all of the uh, career opportunities I have had, I think that I have benefited from it. I think there there were points. Um, you know, for you talked about the inclusion points earlier, there were points in my career when I felt I wish I had done reacted to that situation differently, you know, where, you know, if I felt I was being uh, excluded or there was inappropriate discussion going on in a leadership team where I could have said something to stop it, you know, and I wasn't strong enough. I, there was the moments like that, that comes to mind that I wish I had, you know, the experience or the strength to be able to, deal with that in a very different way. I think those are the same. I mean, there is one thing I would say, actually, which is I wish I had decided not to spend as much time away from home as I did. You know, that would have meant a different career in many ways. But, um, you know, you get hooked into the, uh, the rush of traveling the world and doing different things. But there is a sacrifice, which is, you know, how much time you spend with the family. And I think that's probably the big, big regret for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, what, what are the important attributes uh, do you think a successful leader should have? Uh, and what do you think yourself about that? I mean, the successful leaders that I've seen um, listen. Uh, they are decisive. They make decisions and they make them in a timely manner. They are um, very empathetic, uh, but that doesn't stop them making hard decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we have leaders who are good at running businesses. We have good leaders who are good at changing businesses. Uh, and they have some distinct characteristics. I remember very clearly um, Rob Haver, who was the founder of Capco, uh, and now was the founder of Motive Partners, he had this um, thing where he would say, never, ever, ever, ever give up. So he, 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 just had, he lived by this way, right? It doesn't matter what issues you had, never, ever, ever, ever give up. So that's the mental resilience that was really strong. Keith Wilman, who I mentioned, was my boss at CSC. He had this uh, uh, approach where he knew the detail of every business more than the business unit managers. You know, he was, his attention to detail was something that gave him the respect to, to make people, you know, do things in a very different way. Very, very impressive. Um, you know, Ginny Rometty at IBM, incredible thinker in terms of what the world of AI could look like. So I think different leaders bought, bought different things to the table, but this idea of humility, ability to listen, make decisions, be empathetic, I think those are some of the foundations that we probably saw across everybody. And and uh, what is the most important risk you took and why? Uh, and I just want to ask, like, 
I know that you told in the beginning of the call, so like you have taken risks in your career and that led to more opportunities. Uh, sometimes what happens, like this is what I have seen in, 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 um, in with some of the folks that I speak to and uh, some of the mentoring sessions that I do to as well. Uh, they're afraid to talk to their managers or leaders. Like there is, if they think something, if they have an opinion, uh, they're afraid to tell that. And, and, and you know yourself, right? If you're in a group of a meeting, uh, there will be only two people talking and some people would have a very good opinion. And I think this is wrong or right, but they don't speak up. Do you think it's always more important to not think about who is going to think anything and just speak uh, and give your opinion um, and see how people view it? No, I don't. I think, I think the, the, I, in answer to that question, which is separate from what's the biggest risk you've taken, but let me answer that question first. In answer to that question, when you've got an opinion, you need to make sure that the opinion is heard and assessed, not just that you state your opinion. So if you're saying that I want to state my opinion, whatever happens, I want to say what I think, then yeah, just say it. And maybe people, you know, whatever they think, think. If, you, if you're thinking about how do I make this most effective, then you might think about, okay, how do I get this person, th these two influencers who are most important to hear my opinion first before I put it into a public opinion? Because otherwise the idea might be killed before it even gets anywhere. So I think some, it, it's, it's a, you, know, you need to think about how you're gonna land the decision, who it impacts, how you can get the influence around it before you say your opinion. There's something else that you're alluding to, which is important for people in different parts of their career um, who are in meetings where they don't feel they can express their opinion. And there's a, there's a, there's a few things I would say. I mean, I've been there as well. I mean, I remember early in my career when we had team meetings every Friday, I would sit in the back and try and hide because I could not imagine speaking to this, this community who was you know, my team. And there's something about experience which lets you get over that. But there's also, as you are a leader in your team, make sure that you allow everybody to talk. Maybe there's people in your meeting where you're chairing, there's somebody sat in there wanting to say something but feel they can't. So I think it starts with the responsibility of making sure that you, you're creating an inclusive environment where everybody can say what they want to say. And that is the start of the cultural revolution where you can go into any meeting and everybody will be able to say what they have to say. But you as an individual have got to take that, I think, as a starting position. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one more question I, I, I had was, how do you continue to grow and develop as a leader uh, in your current role? Um, well, I think, I think uh, uh, you know, read. Uh, uh, there's a great quote from somebody who said there is no difference be between people who can't read and who don't read. So I think reading is incredible. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get a lot of joy. Or in my case, it's audio books, actually. So as I'm running or cycling, uh, you know, I, I, I try and make sure that I'm kept up to date with what the thinking is. That's one thing. Secondly is um, volunteer because you are going to be with, when, when you're volunteering, you, you by definition with people who you would not mix with at work, right? So you get a different aspect. And the third thing in my aspect, what I'm doing is I am uh, doing non-exec roles in industries that I've never worked in. So at higher education and sports. And, you know, by definition, everything is new. Everything I'm learning is new. So there's different things, I think. Um, I think it starts with the idea that you want to learn, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... and um... 
what are the what are the most important traits to look for when hiring a new employee i'm i'm not talking about hiring a new graduate or anything what do you as a leader um see if you want to hire someone to to change or transform um your own org uh, and and you want to you know build the team from the scratch what do you see what are the traits you see for hiring someone uh, i think yeah what i what i generally try and understand is whether the individual has a view of what the future looks like and it doesn't have to agree with my view but a view i think is important which means that they've thought it through then i think i i want to understand whether that person has humility in expressing where they have failed because everybody says the biggest learning comes from where you failed if that's the case you better tell me where you failed because that's where you've learned the most and when in an interview where when i say you know tell me your example of where you failed and somebody sort of can't really express that that means they're not in the learning mode uh, and you know what we are after is people who who are looking to learn all of the time and then the third thing is um you know would you socialize with them because you're going to spend a lot of time with these individuals um of course you want some people who are going to be a little you, you want diversity of everybody right so you're not going to socialize with everybody but you need to be able to work with them for long periods of time so you know those are two or three things i think i look out for i remember um, um when i was working for um some companies previously uh, as well uh, there were many occasions where um i have literally failed um and but i have learned a lot um and i think uh the emotional intelligence plays a key role when you have failed you don't get stuck uh to the failure you just pass that on and say okay these are the lessons i learned from it one um take that as a challenge uh and 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 stand up and and move forward and that has helped me a lot <laughs> i think um, i have been successful in delivering uh and deploying um many products and 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 technologies in the back end front end ux ui um uh, uh, as well and I, i i was groomed by many leaders um uh, who i'm who i consider uh, to be my mentors uh from whom i learned each day so but one question i want to ask uh, from that is what is the danger trait <laughs> you think uh for a leader you know uh dangerous um well i mean i think i think the toughest part is um you know wh- whatever you do you're affecting people's lives really you know in terms of uh, have you got an environment where people are happy when they come to work are you offering uh, people an opportunity that they would not have otherwise had uh, uh and, and those are good things that you can influence you can give people a chance that they would not have had otherwise you've got a platform to be able to do that but sometimes you have to make some tough decisions right and you have to let people go and you know that can be catastrophic for people in terms of you know uh, the financial the social personal impact it has um and it's never fun actually but actually uh, it's an important part of a leader's job to do that because you know i i keep when you know when the sort of leadership roles that i've had i keep reminding my team that we are responsible for the mortgages the holidays the aspirations for thousands of families 
And so while we may be concerned about the individual and why we should not let this person go, we have to think about the whole because that's our responsibility. And that can be quite hard. Those can be hard decisions when you're restructuring the businesses. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, I want to ask about your book, uh, Ismail, uh, Incremental to Exponential, how this idea came about. Um, uh, what are your thoughts while writing those books? Uh, is it based on the personal experiences um, that you've seen through all of, throughout your career? What was the inspiration behind writing, uh, writing this book? Yeah, so as I say, I worked with uh, Vivek, who's the co-author here, uh, back in uh, 1992 a long time ago now, um, for, for the startup here Technologies. And then we went our different ways. I went, I carried on in my corporate career. He went into academia. And we've connected every now and then where I've invited him to come and talk about uh, next generation technologies because he's on his fifth or sixth book um, at Capcore at IBM. He would come and give leadership uh, conference speeches. And he kept telling me to write a book about my experiences of the transformation journey from a, as a practitioner and because he was talking about it as an academic and we were talking about it forever and then in 2016 um, 17 we finally decided he basically vivek said look let's do it together because i know you're not going to do it on your own so we finally got down to doing it um, and it is practical experience that i've had from my journey with all these different un unbelievable organizations that vivek's had as an entrepreneur and then as an academic and we're just trying to distill it down to where we think value lies for large organizations who are trying to innovate. And, and um, what's next for Ismail? Do you have, uh, do you think writing books is now in your pipeline to write more books? <laughs> it's a painful process actually, I found. Uh, I don't think, so. I mean, maybe, maybe not. Who knows what's around the corner on that. Um, I think for me, um, Coming out of COVID is going to be fascinating because so many industries are going to look very different from what they look today. Uh, and as somebody who's very interested in disruption and innovation and the emergence of technology, I think I'm really interested in what all of that means for our business, for our, you know, the businesses that we operate in. And of course, we've got this huge um, thing coming around what does it mean for society what is sustainable uh what what does climate change what does sustainability mean for society what does equality mean for society in a world where ai and automation will take away so many jobs and new jobs will be created um you know what what does all these emerging themes mean for how the world looks in the future and so i'm 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 a, I'm a keen observer of all of that uh and hopefully you know, I, uh, I get to watch and maybe participate in some of the things that change how the world lives and works in the future. And, and um, who is Smile after office hours? What, what are your hobbies? What, what do you do for fun? Well, what is fun for Smile? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, I have four kids who uh, oh. keep busy, uh, although they're all in their 20s now, but they're still kids. Um, I'm a keen football supporter, although right now, of course, you can't go and watch anything, but uh, I, I spent a lot of years, a lot of miles traveling, following my team, Manchester United. Uh, and then I, 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 I try and run a marathon every year and long, some long distance cycling. So sports is very important to me. 
and then uh, if you had told me about like because i'm a big liverpool fan we would not be having this discussion <laughs> no i would it would have been still different conversation i would have like we would have <laughs> spoken about football then um and and uh, uh just before uh, we conclude uh, smile i just want to know what are your thoughts for young entrepreneurs and startup uh uh these young entrepreneurs who are just coming out of this covid-19 situations a lot of businesses would get impacted or get closed basically and what do you think are the thoughts or what what, what is your words for them uh, as an encouragement that they should do or be focused on yeah i think most entrepreneurs go into being entrepreneurs because they have incredible ideas that they want to impact on the world they want to change the world the way the world the way it lives and works and the thing with covid is everybody now recognizing recognizes that the world is different in the way it lives and works and everybody is recognizing that it doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are if you've got an idea worth discussing then we will discuss it and we've seen that in government for example in the last 12 months where government are partnering with organizations that have the best idea but don't have the longest history and i think we're seeing that in all of the industries so i would say to the entrepreneurs hang on to your ideas learn from what's going on here in terms of what we think that this the future of the world looks like and use the time to get into the minds of your clients and taking into account that the way clients buy has changed as well and i saw something which said that clients will b2b buyers will now only use 17% of their time to talk to vendors and all the other time they will do all the online discovery themselves so see what you can do in your go to market strategy is going to be and how it's going to be different but you know keep the faith this is what's uh, driven the change in all industries for all time and the entrepreneurs have a responsibility to continue to do that well well said um with that said i think uh, i want to thank you it was a great session and uh, i had many topics but i i, I just I, i we we delved into many interesting topics and and thanks for your time and views on that so it was a great opportunity hosting you and talking to you smile thank you kazim thanks for the opportunity there was ismail chief growth officer of uh, capita uh, we had some interesting episode uh, this week uh, to all my viewers keep supporting us Uh, i would like to bring some new leaders from the industry to talk some uh, something about themselves uh, about their journey about their leadership style about business about industry changes and everything subscribe to the channel we are on podcast apple podcast spotify podcast castbox all the major platforms and until then see you have an amazing thanksgiving week um, take care this is kazim hussain signing off